Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 235 of the podcast for December 7th, 2015. Today's episode is unique in that it was recorded and streamed live online last week. My guest is Sam McPherson. We're talking about lean leadership, his background in the U.S. military and special forces, going back and forth between the military and manufacturing, and uh, really, really interesting background and perspective that Sam has. So I hope you enjoy listening to the episode. If you'd like to watch it as a video, you can actually go to leanblog.org slash 235. There is a YouTube video embedded in the page if you'd rather watch than listen. But either way, I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today on the video feed is Sam McPherson. He is, uh, for those of you who are looking, you can see he is an Alabama fan. He is um, the co-founder of the Lean Leadership Academy. He is the founder of the Summit on Lean Leadership, which is a partnership with the good folks at Lean Frontiers. And I'm really excited about the conversation. Sam, instead of me reading your bio, why don't you tell uh, the viewers, the listeners, you know, about your career. It's such an interesting uh, story that you have. Yeah, I guess you could say I'm more of the accidental lean expert. Uh, it really kind of goes back. Uh, my first job, my first introduction to even Japanese management goes all the way back to the, the late 1970s, where I actually worked while I was uh, after I got out of uh, uh, high school, my first job out of high school before I joined the Army was with a company called Fujicon, which made automotive uh, speakers for for the automotive industry. Uh, and that was my first introduction to anything what was known back then as, as Japanese management method. And I was introduced to 5S and a, and a lot of things we, we know commonly today. We, they certainly didn't call it lean. And, uh, and and was introduced to quality circle activities and got to lead. Uh, it was trained in quality circles and lean uh, and lead some quality circle activities. Uh, uh, of course, they 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 eventually moved the plant, and that kind of left me with where do I go from here? And and joined the army. And uh, over time, uh, got my commission. I was first enlisted. Uh, so I started out as a private E1, nothing, no stripes or anything. I uh, grew up through the ranks, became a staff sergeant, and got the opportunity to, to uh, work as, the, the, uh, as an infantryman for uh, an operations, uh, brigade operations officer. And he recommended me for OCS. So I went to officer candidate school, uh, got my commission as a second lieutenant. And shortly after that, I got an opportunity to work with Dr. Shigeo Shingo during the fielding of uh, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. We we're trying to do modular maintenance uh, and battlefield recovery. Uh, so FMC and um, General Dynamics had, I guess, had brought him in. Oh, wow. uh, of course, at the time, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> you, you, you never do. But and some but, people listening might not know who he is. Look up Shigeo Shingo. <laughs> don't know he's a yeah, and uh and and i got an opportunity later on uh of course i went into special forces uh after that uh jumping in and out of bradley fighting vehicles and when you want to blow things up and shoot things uh is is less fun i didn't realize the career changing opportunity that was for me but uh 
but I got an opportunity to to really kind of learn from from me some some unique things that stuck with me over the years. But then I went on into special forces and uh, and and for those of you that don't know, the U.S. Army Special Forces is nicknamed the Green Berets. Uh, so we're kind of similar to uh, to the Girl Scouts because we both wear one. Uh, and uh, but but during the 80s, it wasn't such a great time for special operations at that time. And uh, decided to get back into manufacturing uh, for a while and was and 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 essentially uh, got to work with. Uh, um, got to intern at Toyota for two years at Georgetown, mm. and then out of that, uh, helped with the setup of the Mercedes-Benz plant in Vance, Alabama, as part of my Alabama stuff, and uh, then went to work with Crown Cork and Seal, became operations manager, a plant manager, uh, ma uh, director of manufacturing technology, uh, and then the war happened. Uh, and then I got called back to my old job. Uh, this is uh, 2001, right after 9-11. Right, immediately after 9-11, was one of the first guys to go in uh, to, to Karshikhanabad, Uzbekistan, then, then Afghanistan as part of Task Force Dagger. So if you remember the guys that were riding horseback up the, the Bok Valley and, and all that kind of stuff, and guys that wore hats like this uh, back then, I was one of those guys. So uh, my job was to, I was a, the chief of special operations plans. So I basically did the war planning and sent the A-teams out to do their missions in Afghanistan. Uh, and retired in 2004, got back into uh, consulting uh, through the University of North Carolina uh, and helping them with their College of Engineering and then decided, you know, just to de dedicate, you know, the rest of my, my life to leadership development and and, and more effective uh, lean transformations. So uh, that's what I do today uh, with the Lean Leadership Academy. It's something that, that Art Smalley and I got started back in 2011, 2012, and, uh, and it's been a great experience. So that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, it's quite a nutshell. And, you know, thank you uh, for, for all of your service to the country. And it's in really interesting to me to hear about your steps back and forth. I, I've Heard, you know, I've met people who started, they were in the military, then they've gotten into industry or into healthcare and they've gotten exposed to lean. You, it seemed like, you know, you were in industry, then the military, then back to industry, then back to the military, back to the industry. Um, and, and, and to have now, lean be a part of that, uh, it, you know, in, in even those early days, you mentioned um, your first steps in industry, right? Yeah. And even now I still, I haven't uh, quite let go. Uh, I, I, I work with as an advisor to the special forces officer program uh, because I live not too far from, from the training base that uh, the special forces uses here in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And uh, so I'm out there pretty regularly advising them on, on leadership development uh, with the Special Forces Officer course uh, as part of uh, the Special Warfare Center here out at Camp McCall. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I'm, I'm still riding both of those rails, one foot on each. It seems like I can't get out of either <laughs> either industry, but uh, it, it, it kind of keeps me young and, 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 and it feels like I'm contributing, you know, yeah. both ways. So. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk more about you know, the idea or maybe, you know, misperceptions that people have. I, I personally have no background uh, in the military. I've learned a lot. You know, I worked, for example, with a hospital lab director who was retired out of military medicine and then was in the civilian 
space. And you know, he taught me a lot about, I think, the misperceptions or the stereotypes that people have about, quote unquote, command and control right. leadership in the military. You think really hierarchical, dictatorial, do as I say. And, you know, and in, in, in a workplace, people, I think, rightfully are realizing that's not the right way to ensure quality and, and to get things done and to engage people. So maybe, you know, to build on what I learned from, you know, that one lab director, what, what are some of the misperceptions that us civilian folk have about, oh, you know, oh, how it is in the military with that, you know, supposed command and control type uh, approach? Well, in so to talk about command and control just right up front, just to define what that is from a military perspective, uh, it, it is not uh, Frederick Taylor, you know, Taylorism type approach to uh, separating the thinking group, the management group, the professional group from from the the production hands, you know, the the workers. Uh, where and I think you know Frederick Taylor did a lot to advance that progressive thinking around you know what is command and control and what is the role of management versus what is, what is the role of labor and and so the ghost of Taylorism uh, from that perspective uh, and and I'm not completely opposed to everything that Frederick Taylor did I think he did some great things I think some of the the things his legacy has has left both good things and and yeah. things will but, but like you said the the part of the bad is that separation between thinking and doing lean thinkers would realize everybody's thinking um, that, you know and, and so and 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 there are people that came up post you know post the 20s and and you know the turn of the 20th century that that went on to actually lead both in industry in the military industrial complex and and in the military that were influenced with taylor's thinking and so it did creep into uh both government and and the military at points but the the actual definition of how we look at command and control really has to do with uh who who is going to provide unity of command? Who will be the decision maker? Who do we go to? This is really TWI stuff. Who do we go to for help and direction? Uh, the other thing about command and control, the, the control part of it really refers to uh, support and fire direction. Uh, so when military talks about control, we're talking about control of weapon systems. So when you're getting support, who gets the support? Who is the primary to get support uh, with fire support? How will we control that support? How will we turn it on? How do we turn it off? And this is used to be part of my job as the special operations, uh, you know, plans guy was to decide, you know, if we're going to have the Air Force light up an area for a certain extent for a while before we have guys on horseback and some people on bare feet run up through a valley where bad guys are uh, to kind of soften the targets a little bit and kind of open the door for them. You know, I have to open up, you know, certain fireboxes and turn them off. So who controls that? How we control it? So when we're talking about control, we're even talking about fire support uh, and, 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 and artillery support and how we're going to do that and how it will be used. When we talk about command on the other side, it, we really have to, when you have guys under stress and under duress and in, in the fog of war, so to speak, you need to know who's in charge. And if for some reason 
that the person that makes the decision of life and death or who is going to make decisions about movement and maneuver, uh, you need to know in the event that that some that part of that chain of command is disabled, you need to know who's next in the chain of command to take that responsibility. So from command that really is, who do I go to for leadership? Who do I go to for direction? And who, go, who do I go to for support? And if any part of that chain of command is disabled, I know who's next in that chain of command that I now latch onto for my direction because you deconflicting combat operations, communication is critical. And the other part of that, that, that command part is the communications. You know, how will we communicate? Who will we communicate through? Um, and, and so command and control really kind of extends to communications as well. So when we talk about command and control, it's really about fires. It's about unity of command. It's about communications. Uh, and, and, and if you understand that part, maybe mm -hmm. that opens up the doors uh, a lot because it isn't so much do as I say, not as I do, you know, kind of, you know, us and them kind of mentality. Uh, and I will say this because it, it, having been a private, you, you know, in the military, when you are first introduced as part of the American military, uh, you're told if there are two of you at one person senior, one person will take charge and will take the initiative. So we're really in, in the U.S. Army, at least we're taught to take the initiative, take command uh, and lead from from your first eight weeks in the Army. And, and that stays with you throughout your career. Now, later on, as we as we advance your career, you're better prepared for it mm -hmm. because, you know, you get career long training on how to be a leader uh, and how to make decisions uh, and how to basically problem solve. Does any of that sound familiar? Yeah. So what, what I hear you saying is that command and control, it's more about structure and support than it is micromanaging. Absolutely. Uh, you can, you now, I'm not going to say that you, if there have not been military leaders that have not been micromanagers, clearly there have, mm -hmm. uh, but it's very, it's almost near impossible to, to tightly command and control from the traditional thinking standpoint, complex operations, especially in special operations, over vast terrain, you know, uh, and when we talk about terrain, we're also talking about networks. We're also talking about people, you know, so we, you, you know, you, how difficult it would it be to control, you know, interactions, especially say in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, with populations that where you have to have intimate uh, knowledge of the area, it just becomes impossible to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. Well, and so can you one thing that's been really interesting to me as people have taught me about this is the idea of commander's intent, mm -hmm. which I, I think, can you, can you talk about that in terms of setting the, the direction, having a goal, but not micromanaging or taking away decision-making within that context? Yeah. And, and this is true. This is part of something that's called the military decision-making process or MDMP. Uh, and so within, within the military, we have our own problem solving structure and we have our own planning structure. And so the military decision making process is really a form of both problem solving and, and a team collaboration, deconfliction, uh, and, 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 and leadership and, 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 
and project planning. So the military decision-making process requires the, the, the commander as the senior leader and providing unity of command to do his specific role in that planning process. Primarily is to provide planning guidance and priorities, uh, and priorities regarding resources and efforts. Uh, which I wish more of our civilian uh, counterparts would do that up front. Right. So, so the the commander has to do first and foremost is is define and analyze the mission, which we basically say you need to boil that down into what we call the five W's: who, who will do the mission, what is the mission, when is the mission to be done, where is the mission to be done, and why are we doing that. Uh, and part of the extension of that why is, that the commander provides is his intent, which is what is his vision or end state that he wishes to accomplish mm. as a result of the mission. And, and the reason why that's important is if, if the unit understands the intent, even if we can't accomplish the, the mission as stated or restated, if we understand the intent, we may be able to accomplish the intent, which is the desired end state. Today, more than ever, that that commander's intent becomes probably the most critical element of the MDM pre, MDMB process, because because it is a very complex, fluid, uh, you know, three dimensional, you know, environment that we're operating in, more asymmetrical than traditional warfare that if you really have to understand the intent so that then you can see all the resources, all the opportunities, all the collaborative efforts and platforms we can use to accomplish that intent. Yeah. A lot of smart guys working together to try to accomplish that end state. Mm -hmm. So tell, tell me, you know, how, how do you make direct connections or parallels or help translate, or, you know, the, the Green Beret way to the Toyota way in terms well, of similarities or how, um, you know, one, one, you know, lessons from the Green Beret way would be a, uh, applicable into a lean environment. Um, yeah, and, and if I and if I could if I could talk for a minute, Mark, about probably the differences between you know general purpose forces, which we call the conventional military, oh, okay. uh, and 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 special forces, and and why this would be different and more applicable. Okay, great. Uh, so there is a level of uh, in, in the in the military. Uh, in, in all the services, most of your your population, most of the you know the, the population of the military, are, are going to come in as unskilled workers to a certain extent, and there and we have to professionalize them. So so the general purpose force approach is not only to train someone who's never been a soldier or a sailor or a marine in that profession. But to a certain extent, because of the skill level and because of the complexity and and the nature of the operations, there is probably a little bit more directive leadership in, for the bulk of the population. Mm -hmm. So, since most of your your population is going to be is is going to be enlisted junior ranks, you know, just a, a traditional pyramid type organization. Uh, then you're going to need more leaders that that exercise more directive style leadership, but still supportive and mentoring to style leadership. Mm -hmm. And because you have that youth and that inexperience, just like you would do at the end of an assembly line, you know, in, in final assembly at Toyota, you're going to have more strict standards. You're going to have, you know, more leadership, more direction. 
whereas it's in special forces, we do have we do recruit a small population straight off the street as part of our 18 Zulu program uh, or 18 X-ray program, excuse me. Uh, but we usually recruit them because they're bringing something special to the special forces. But other than that, probably 90% of, of our force is recruited out of the military. So they're already experienced commanders. They're all, they've already been through leadership training. They're experienced soldiers, completely different population. And the folks that we're going to pull into special operations because of special forces is more collaborative by nature. Uh, the, the the intelligence level is is a lot different as well. I mean, the the average IQ of an officer in special forces is right around 122, but but can run up to 100 and you know 30, 140. Uh, where and so the the team members on a special forces A team or operational detachment Alpha uh, is not too far off of that. It'll run from a 112 uh, up to 118 for some of our medical and, and communications uh, uh, enlisted guys. So here you've got a team that's different than the rest of the Army because our mission is to build rapport. Uh, is, is as much military, as much State Department mission mm -hmm. as it is military. Uh, and, and so because you have to build relationships and, and networks and you have to understand the culture uh, we, we also, everybody on the Special Forces A team speaks at least one language that's uh, additional language mm -hmm. uh, because we speak the language of, of the, you know, the population we work with. We're culturally uh, very sensitive and very, very well educated to cultural norms and taboos and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it takes a different type of, of soldier to be in the Green Berets versus a complete direct action mission, special operation mission, where maybe there's not a lot of conversation that goes on. Uh, and, and special forces too, a big part of our mission is training either unconventional warriors uh, like we did in Afghanistan or, or foreign internal defense, you know, host nations like, for example, we'll, you know, we'll train special operators in, in Iraq, or we'll train them in Turkey, or we'll train them in Italy, or like like I've done, or or in South America. So a big big part of our professional development is the ability to teach, train, and make presentations. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like TWI, doesn't it? <laughs> and and the other thing that's really different is is special forces is is we call them detachments because we are literally able. You could take a special forces corporate unit called a group and break it apart into smaller units and send it off to do its own unique mission. That's mm -hmm. unique from other types of military units. And in doing so, we, we're trained in a very high level of, uh, of problem solving, uh, mission planning, project planning, our own version of MDMP. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we relate differently. We are, we are literally a, a special forces or the Green Berets is literally a, a an organization built out of teams, small teams that operate the 12 man A team, mm -hmm. but that 12 man A team could split into two six man teams or or buddy teams or three man surveillance teams. Uh, so we literally operate as teams uh, all the way up to the corporate unit. And so so the similarities between special forces and Toyota is the investment career long investment in small team leadership mm -hmm. all the way up to the general level 
uh, we, we, we continued special operations uh, training throughout our career. Uh, we operate in teams. We have our own version of, of Toyota business practice, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our own problem solving methodology that we use. Um, we, we have our own project of, uh, planning, which we use for mission planning. Uh, even the, the mission, the mission, uh, the military mission decision-making process or MDMP process, we have a version of that for special operation that is more collaborative in nature. Mm -hmm. So because, because we have such experience uh, and such intellectual heft on a, on, a, on a Green Beret team, we approach it differently and it tends to be team mission planning. Uh, I may be the team commander, but my whole team will get a piece of that mission and we'll plan it together. We all have roles that we'll play during that mission planning process. Yeah. Well, and you, know, you talk about teams. Uh, I, I've read about the first six chapters of the book Team of Teams by uh, General Stanley McChrystal. Right. Um, really enjoyed, at least I, I need to read the rest of the book over the holidays here, but there are very, lots and lots of parallels to lean leadership uh, in his discussion of that. And that phrase seems very specific, team of teams, right? Yeah, when you kind of get into some of the later chapters, you'll probably see more of the collaborative, what we call fusion cell type approach, where uh, where you're bringing in, you know, everyone that can, from every different branch or service or government agency that and collaboratively working together to see trends and patterns because even though there, yeah, there are algorithms that can help you with that, uh, it's still that human intelligence, you know, and, 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 and teams looking together at a common problem and seeing different perspectives of that. And, and so as you get a little bit later into the book Team of Teams, you'll see how they really kind of discovered something we've been working on for 30 years, to be honest, yeah. you know, in yeah. the lean community. And uh, I'm glad General McChrystal kind of is joining the Jo joining us in in that in that process so sure. something that, that's a little different too in special forces that's different than the rest of uh the, the the military but more appropriate to 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 the toyota approach is that is is shared leadership so one of the things that i may be the team commander of the special forces a team but because the missions are very specific we may have an engineering mission we may have a medical-based mission. We may have a tactical mission. Uh, at a certain point, I hand over the operational leadership to that subject matter expert on my team. And so we, if we're on an engineering mission, I will lead the overall uh, mission planning and, and execution. But when I get to the engineering part, I'll turn leadership over to my senior engineering sergeant to lead that mission till we complete the engineering. Uh, and I'll just end up hauling bricks or, or placing charges, you know, I'll just be another member of the team. You know, I, you know, so that's where we say we abdicate authority within the team, but, we, but I can't abdicate my responsibility as a leader mm -hmm. uh, for, for the overall accomplishment of the mission. Right. So, and, and let's, so let's go ahead and bring it back to that point then about the similarities, you know, you've, you've covered some of the differences between Green Beret way, traditional military. What, what now are the connections or the lessons from the Green Beret way into lean leadership or the Toyota way? Well, it's, it's uh, first off, career-long uh, development of, of leadership. Uh, I mean, one of the things you'll find out, like with Toyota, you'll have Toyota business practice. You'll have 
you know, you know, problem solving, or you'll have hosting planning that applies all the way down to the, to the team level, whether that's, you know, shop floor management and development. But what you'll see as you grow in scope or in responsibility to group leader, area manager, even, you know, present, you're still using those same basic tools, uh, but, but the scope and the complexity of the problem is different. So you're using the thinking structures, but you're applying it at a different level. Well, we do the same thing. MDMP, you know, at the small team level, it, we continue to use that. We don't change that process when we get up to, you know, total country global operations. We still approach it with the same methodology, just the scope and the complexity and the lab level of collaboration uh, changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, you know, special forces and, and, and say lean is really should be, if it's not, it certainly isn't Toyota based on small team leadership, uh, and collaborative collaboration between uh, uh, teams and leadership. So if you, for example, if you're on a shop floor team at Toyota, if you're a team leader, you're collaborating with other team leaders up and down the, the, the uh, you know, the value stream for lack of a better term, or you're collaborating with your group leader or with your area manager. And, and so it becomes more of a matrix organization. So the leadership needs to be small group matrix leadership. Uh, and, and again, structured problem solving and approach to problem solving and planning needs to be the same throughout your career. Just, you need to have both pre, uh, pre-promotion, uh, development and post-promotion development as a leader and how that applies in your current role. So, so, so with lean leaders, we need to have similar to Toyota and similar to, uh, to the Green Berets the Green Beret way uh, is, is core competencies that every lean leader should have. Number two, uh, role-based competencies and preparation for those role-based competencies. And then, then mentorship after you're in the role. And then you need to have situational or context-based competencies. So how do I apply my core competencies and my role-based competencies to the situation that, that I'm facing right now? And to a certain extent, role-playing, scenario-based, you know, even uh, even in the operations, find creative ways to expose your leaders to both their best day and their worst day as a leader before they actually have their best day or worst day as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that kind of, um, kind yeah. of make sense from that perspective? Yeah, so I mean, you know, to that last point, you're, you're trying to give, I mean, I guess you, you, you're trying to test people to see how they're gonna react and mm-hmm. The situation of let's okay here's your worst day how are you going to be able to handle that and try yeah. to develop somebody before they're in that heat of the moment i mean you know toyota you go to a toyota plant here in san antonio even you'll see an area labeled you know training dojo right and uh you know i think a lot of that is around manufacturing skills training and, and different types of training where it seemed like you know they're very specifically taking people offline and making that invest investment in people's development can you do the same thing um in terms of leadership, you talk about role playing, you can practice. Absolutely. One yeah. of the things that we're doing with the Summit on Lean Leadership, we did a little bit of that this this last October, and we're going to be doing more of it uh, this June. Is we, but, but, but to try to set this up as a model for, for companies to actually do as part of their leadership development, even their team development, is to create scenarios where they, you have to 
we have to to approach specific problems that a leader has to think through the decision tree think through uh the, the different levels of influence that they need to have one of the things if you kind of look back at the whiteboard right quick uh that we always talk about as a lean leader one of the things that you kind of look at as 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 a series of concentric circles and as a leader you want to influence you know okay what are the what are the core competencies role-based competencies and the situational competencies i need to experience experiential leadership development i guess is what i'm coming down to mm -hmm. to 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 be able to lead and influence inside of my team and now if you're if you're a ceo that's that that group of 6 10 12 people that that you work with and you have to influence and develop and and influence to accomplish something but but if you're a team leader or a supervisor you have to do that within your team but then you've got the the just outside of your team that maybe that's part of your value stream how do i need to influence and so what are the things that i what are maybe what may what are some of the things that some so, so obstacles that i as a leader outside of my team need to need to take you know to eliminate mm -hmm. and i think it's a big case of something that leaders need to do a role a leader does is actually influence you know bringing down the obstacles so their right. team is successful but but then but that leader also needs to be able to experience what it is to lead inside of the organization or even inside or outside of the organization in the community. And, and the thing that's interesting, the further you get away from that center circle, the less knowledgeable people are about lean, uh, lean methodologies. And, and so you'll have to influence a higher level of non lean folks. So, you know, if you're going to do a startup, you're going to have to, you know, work with the mayor, with the utilities, with the community. And so the further you get away from that, that center circle, the, 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 the more you're going to have to lead from our lean principles mm -hmm. uh, and, and from our, our lean values. But you have to do that for folks that may not be aware or maybe even appreciate mm -hmm. those, those lean values and, the, and principles. Right. And, and so as we get away from that, the, the thing about context, uh, developing leaders from an experiential context standpoint is how can we find creative ways to have leaders have that experience in each one of these circles, um, you know, as part of their leadership development. And so we do that with our Lean Leadership Academy uh, clients, but we're also doing more of that with, with uh, with our with the with the summit we'll be doing more you know you know scenarios that you know you'll be able to say okay and be very collaborative about it uh it, okay leaders you just experienced this how should you as a lean leader with lean thinking lean principles and lean values approach this differently than mm -hmm. than you know, than a traditional leader or manager would do Right. So and maybe the last point we can um, cover here um, in, in the podcast builds on that, you know, talking about lean leadership styles and values. People will say on some level, I, I want to implement lean. We're going to get lean. And, and they might be thinking about tools or they might be I see leaders. This happens in healthcare. executives say, OK, you need to get lean. They're pointing, forgive my pointing at the employees and they're not looking 
in the mirror. They're not necessarily learning lean leadership. So how do you define, you know, in the work you're, you do in different industries or manufacturing, how do you define the gap between kind of existing leadership, lean leadership? How do you define that gap? And what do you do to try to help make people understand the gap and try to help close the gap? Uh, you know, the, I wish I could say that there was that much of a gap between the two, but I, th I think you, you probably experienced this as much as I do. Uh, first off, the willingness to lead uh, from, from lean, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm ardently, uh, uh, my, my thinking is that lean leadership is in of itself a discipline. Uh, and, and, and in the same way that military leadership is a discipline, it's very unique. And what makes it unique is we do have fundamental values that we share that are unique to our, you know, both the, the lean community. We do have expected behaviors. Uh, we do have uh, defined thinking structures, you know, you know, PDCA thinking and Pareto thinking. And, uh, and, and, and so, so since we have, defined values uh, that we agree to, that we have fundamental principles that, that we make decisions through, and we have thinking structures, and we have expected behaviors, that pretty much makes it a discipline. And I think the one thing that, that lean leaders need to do to, to really close the gap uh, uh, and, and as leaders is, is to really uh, First off, define what that is for you. What are the, you know, our lean values? What are our lean thinking structures? And promote that. Uh, one of the things that I'm finding most often with our clients, once we get past, you know, the general understanding of, you know, okay, I can get my head around. I'm a financial guy. You know, I'm having a tough time getting my head around running my business from a, from a manufacturing operational philosophy. Once we get past that, uh, it really is being able to say, all right, now that you've adopted that, how do you deploy throughout the entire organization a uniform approach to problem solving, to planning, to leading? And, and if you are going to be a leader, uh, then then really plan before you do. Really do uh, and make sure you check for everything that you do and then, then, then act or adjust accordingly. Uh, one of the things I find out most often, both from my lean leaders and 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 general purpose leaders, for for lack of a better term, uh, the non-lean leaders, is that they wait too late to do what to give guidance, the right kind of guidance. Uh, so, for example, you know, annual planning process is notorious at, at the end of the year. Um, you know, that you'll, you'll say, hey guys, we got to start doing the budget for next year. Uh, you know, here's some of the things I need I need from you, 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 and you. Forgive my pointing. And then, and then they, they send everybody off to, to go do their part of the, the, the AOP or the budget. And then they'll come back and, and then I'll sit down with them and brief them. Well, no, that's not really what I'm looking for. And they'll spend every hour of every day for the next three or four weeks micromanaging that process. And what, what they're really doing is in the check mode, they're finally giving them the guidance that they should have, they should have mm -hmm. given them in the, the early stage of the plan mode. Right. And right. what I would like for our lean leaders to do and uh, our, our up and coming lean leaders to do is to do something that we use as part of our planning process uh, in, in the NDMP process is if you looked at the PDCA cycle, uh, we use something called rule of thirds. 
And so we look at something when something is due and we backward plan and we, we divide that into thirds. And the rule of thumb is that a leader cannot consume any more than the first one third of that available time to develop, mm -hmm. to go and see, uh, practice Genshigimusu, go and see, develop a tentative plan. And then you must give guidance to your teams as to what are the priorities and give them a top five and say, what are the critical time structures, your timetable requirements, and, 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 and give them a commander's intent. Mm -hmm. So what is my intent for the budget for this next year? And then let your team have the remaining two thirds of time to go through their PDCA mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. And so good upfront guidance is critical that, that, that leaders yeah. do, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've said, you know, kind of more generally, uh, I've blogged about this before. The ability or the obligation to study and adjust is not an excuse for bad planning. Yeah. It's got, it's got to be some plan, not just do, you know, do and then stubbornness. Uh, plan and do and study and adjust. It's, it's such a powerful uh, a powerful concept. And so Sam, yeah, you know, special forces, they'll, you know, they'll actually fight you for it. And, you know, the A team will say, look, you, you know, here's the first thing we'll do when we get a mission is put a timetable together. And, and I know that my, that first one third is, and even less if possible to get that, that mission specified tasks, uh, implied tasks, mostly the specified tasks, things that you must do. Uh, and, and understand my limits, uh, you know, what are the limits and what are my resource limits and so forth and get that out to the team as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And, and if I consume more than one third of that available time, they will eat your lunch because they're going to do their, their PDCA cycle yeah. and they want that two thirds to do their planning. But more importantly, they need to go rehearse it. They need to go mock up. You know, they need to trial for from a lean perspective. Mm -hmm. so you need to allow that available time before you go get on an aircraft or before you put it on the shop floor. Yeah. And going back to something you said earlier, we need to create that dojo of the mind for a leader as well. You know, where we can we can go through these scenarios that we we do as part of a brief back process where we actually talk through the mission and say, OK, what are the war stoppers along the way? And I think if leaders did more of this mm -hmm. and 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 really respected their team's time. Right. Um, it, it make a tremendous difference in, in, in their leadership approach. Yeah. Well, Sam, um, I, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, the podcast portion. Maybe we'll, we'll stay on live here um, for a few minutes afterwards, but um, you know, for people listening to the report, the recorded podcast, uh, our guest again has been Sam McPherson. Uh, Sam, can you tell people if they want to find you online, what are some websites or places that can go to? Yeah, uh, first off, uh, keep keep uh, you can find find me on Facebook uh, under uh, the Lean Leadership Academy and the Summit on Lean Leadership. And of course, I'm that person. Uh, you can find uh, the Lean Leader Way is my uh, uh, is my Twitter uh, handle, but I also have the Green Beret Way if you're a little more interested in the Lean version of Green Beret version of Lean. Uh, and uh, of course, look out for www.thesummitonleanleadership.com uh, for, for this coming June and uh, for everything to do with the Summit on Lean Leadership. Uh, and then, of course, if you're interested in, in help with your transformation, uh, then www.leanleadershipacademy.com. Uh, we 
we are pretty selective about who we work with, but, uh, but if uh, you got the right stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe you can join the A team. So, uh, so those are a few ways to get a hold of me uh, and, uh, and look forward to hearing from folks if we can help in any way. All right. Well, thank you. And again, our guest here has been Sam McPherson, the very first live streamed broadcast episode of the podcast. This will, for those of you listening, watching live, I will publish this as episode 235 of my podcast series where I interview leaders and authors and people about lean and in all realms. So you can go to www.leanpodcast.org. If, uh, if you haven't discovered that podcast, I would invite you to go and check that out. So Sam, been great talking to you today and I hope you. you have a great weekend. I guess I feel obligated to say roll tide. Is that how you roll do it? Hide. You <laughs> beat, beat Florida. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.